Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. It was in the year 2000, and the Olympics were going on in Sydney, Australia. The Olympic Committee had decided that it would be a big deal if we could include more people from more nations who had not participated in the Olympics. So there was a fella from Equatorial Guinea. His name is David Musambani. David Musambani came to the Olympics in 2000 to swim the 100 freestyle, even though he had never in his life seen an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Where he lived, he trained in a lake. And as you know, a 100-meter freestyle in the Olympics is down and back. It's a sprint. The world record is somewhere around 46, 47 seconds, okay? I mean, that's, that's Michael Phelps stuff, right? Eric Musambani was in a heat with the three slowest swimmers <clears throat> in those Olympics. And so when he got into the starting position and they were getting ready to shoot the gun, Eric Musambani was there and the other two swimmers jumped early and disqualified themselves, and the only person left to swim the race was Eric Musambani. And so they did it all over again. The gun went off, and he jumped into the water. And as he swam, you can see this on YouTube. You can hear the announcer say, I've never seen anything like this in my life because he was swimming the way me or you would in the Olympics. It was just ugly. I mean, he made it to the end of the pool, and his turn looked like what I do at the YMCA. It was like a seal that was uncoordinatedly weird. I mean, when he made the turn, you could almost hear the announcers groan, oh, seriously, he's halfway back at 75 meters, and one of the announcers says, I don't think he's going to make it. And he said, what do you, the other guy says, sure he will, it's the Olympics, and you can watch Eric Musambani, his head never goes in the water the last 25 meters, because he's, he's, he's dog paddling by now, he's so out of breath. I mean, his time finishing the 100 meters was two minutes plus, latest, slowest record of all time. But when he got to the 75-meter mark, Everybody in the stands is going crazy cheering for Eric Musambani. In his home country, they gave him a nickname, Eric the Eel. And when he got to the end of the swim, literally they show this close-up on him, and here's what he's doing. I mean, he is dying. And when he gets out, the announcer, you know, who always has some silly question about how does this feel, Eric Musambani has this huge smile, and he looks into the camera, and he says, that was so great. I won the gold. <laughs> and he finished, and he said, I'm so happy. And the announcers are like, what just happened here? And the people are still cheering. It's a picture of this and that, first and last. In Eric Musambani's mind, all he was supposed to do is jump in the pool. All his job was to do was to swim. For some of us, all God's calling us to do is just get off of the starting gate and jump in the pool and just swim.
it's amazing who will cheer us on when we do the most counterculture things known to mankind. The basis on this series is the picture that everything Jesus teaches us is counterintuitive to what we know. When we were little boys and little girls, you know what we were taught to do? Win. I mean, I, I can still hear all my ball coaches, you know, use that great statement. You know, it's, it, if you're not winning, you're last. If you're not in first place, you lost. And you listen, don't get me wrong, I'm not all about giving every kid a trophy because he shows up. I, I did nothing wrong with winning and losing. What I'm saying to you, though, is that we took that facet and we put it in every aspect of our life. We even put it in our walk with God. And we look around and compare ourselves to other people and say, well, you know what? I'm beating them. I'm better than them. I'm outracing them. I outswam them. I love Jesus more. I serve more. I give more. I go more. I do more. And before you know it, we're putting our own crown on our head. We're wearing our own false gold medals. And before you know it, we start believing all that junk, and everybody sees us, and that's what happens when we become pompous, self-righteous Christians. Because we believe the standard is to measure ourselves against somebody else as opposed to God's standard for our life. Eric Musambani just jumped in the pool. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to join me in Matthew chapter 19. Today I want to take a look at this paradoxical teaching that really is woven through all of Jesus' teaching. It's the concept that the last will be first, that the first will be last. It is so contrary to everything we know. Now, let's define a paradox for us. According to Webster's, here's what a paradox is. Something such as a situation, maybe a person, that is made up of two opposite things and that seems impossible but is actually true or possible. Jesus, in almost all of his teaching, uses a paradoxical perspective to teach. Like, a paradox for most of us that grew up in the church is, you know, pull out your phones and follow with our sermon notes. That doesn't feel right because you've been told, don't use your phone in church, put it up, don't look at that. Well, what I want to ask you to do is take your phone. If you've got the app, go ahead and download, uh, and, or don't download, but just push on resources. You'll find today's January 11 message notes, and you can follow along right with me with my sermon notes and the scriptures that are in there. And so just go and open resources, and you can follow with me. And when you say, well, man, I missed that point because you spoke too fast, it's in your phone or your tablet, and just go ahead and find and follow with me, including the Scripture references. But here's what we find here in this biblical paradox of first and last. It's about as counterintuitive, it's almost as counterculture as we can imagine. When you look at this, this might be a model for how we would genuinely succeed in 2015. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning verse 27, then Peter said to him, the him is Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? And Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Now, 
put this in context. Remember, if you understand the context of where, why it was written then, you'll understand the context of us today. This is right after two very important things happened in the Bible. One is Jesus says to the, uh, to the disciples when children are coming to him, they're wanting to shoot kids away because clearly the disciples don't think kids matter. And so they're trying to shoot kids away. And what does Jesus say? No, bring those little ones to me. Because, see, Jesus understood then what it was to try to share with the next generation. The reason we come together tonight to have this dinner and this time together, this rally, is that we believe that when Jesus said, let children come unto us, he understood that was a big deal. I mean, in our community, 12,000 middle and high schoolers live in our community. That's why tonight's a big deal. That's why we make it a big deal. Jesus said, let those kids come to me. But then a second thing happened, and right before this, what happens is a wealthy young man comes to Jesus, and he says, how can I have what these people have? How can I have eternal life? Jesus says to him, go sell everything you own, give away everything you got to the poor, and then come back. And the Scripture says the guy kind of looked down and gets in this deep depression, and he walks away. We never hear from him again. So what we, what we can assume from that is this guy walks away, and he never comes back to Jesus. And so the disciples, having experienced that, are saying, Peter's saying, hey, wait a minute, look what we've given up, look what we've done. I mean, surely, man, there's, there's got to be like a, if, if it's a hundred times, dude, it's like a hundred thousand times for me, right? I mean, Jesus, I'm, I'm on this thing, I've got it. Well, now, watch what happens. So the disciples ask him, and they, and they go in there and they say, wait a minute, aren't we going to be big shots in your kingdom someday? Aren't we going to be big shots, uh, you know, in your world? Like God, God, in your world, aren't we, aren't we a big deal? And so the paradoxical teaching of Jesus is, is this is concept that we really have to be last, but we have to choose to be last. This is where things get complicated. You see, Jesus isn't talking to the wealthy young ruler about money. He's talking about his heart. Every time Jesus teaches... He's teaching about a matter of the heart. Now, be clear. There are times Jesus talks about money. Jesus talks about sex. Jesus talks about many things. He talks about gluttony. He talks about many things. But every time he's talking about the matter of our heart. You see, the essence here isn't that that guy has to go sell everything before he can have Christ and have eternal life and have salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, whatever stands between you and a right relationship with God, you need to get rid of that. Jesus isn't saying being wealthy is a problem. He's not saying your, your money is the issue. He's saying your heart's the issue. Now, when you put it in context, then you look at our life and you say, what stands between me and the right relationship with God? For some of us, it's, it's computer games. For some of us, it's work. For some of it's our attitude. For some of it's our selfishness. For some of us, it's relationships. But then again, Peter comes back, and Jesus somehow lovingly and patiently teaches them this paradoxical truth that'll shape their lives and will shape ours. Listen to what he says. But many who are the greatest now will be the least then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Jesus is teaching them, and Jesus is teaching us, that when we choose to take the lowest possible position we're in the right position to re reach his and receive his greatest blessing. And what he's saying is the, the, the more you try to be a big shot in the kingdom, the further down the line you actually are. Jesus is saying, listen, I need you guys to wake up. The economy of God's kingdom doesn't equal the economy that you think 
it does. Jesus is saying here, when these disciples are having this discussion, it might appear that they've given up everything and they had to follow Jesus, but Jesus is trying to teach them something that continues. Jesus is saying, whatever your position of authority is, whatever your position of power is, that counts for nothing because it's about the motive of your heart. It's not about, uh, we, we, we've got folks in this church and there are folks in every church who have this Christian martyr syndrome that if I work harder, if I do more, if I'm there every time the doors are open, if I give more, if I, if I do all that, God's going to love me more and God's going to bless me more. Listen to me. That is not Bible teaching. Bible teaching is all those things you do, you ought to do because it started in your heart, not because somebody's going to put a notch in their belt and say, look what I did. And you see, in every facet of the church and in every facet of our spiritual life, we have to grasp this understanding that it's all a matter of our heart. So you go back into this text, and here's what it teaches you. And this is so amazing to me. I mean, it's, it blows my mind. I look at this, and I say to myself, wait a minute. Then according to that, if we were to line up an organizational chart of God's kingdom and see who's a big deal and who's not a big deal, what we would find is this. We may find that Diane Moffey is ahead of Billy Graham because she's feeding those kids in, in, in Haiti with a passionate desire, with a broken heart. Every dollar that comes through here, she scraps and fights to make it worth $5 to go to Haiti. In the middle of all that, you know, you know what's interesting? I guarantee you I'm going to be lower down the organizational chart than Harry Kent will be because of all those diapers he carries out of here on Sunday and puts in that dumpster. One of the last people to live who's out there doing that. And you, and you say, yeah but, yeah, but Chuck, look at the impact Billy Graham's had. I'd say look at the impact Harry Kent's had. Look at the impact that, that we've had. I'd say look at those ladies who go over there and help these young teenage moms at Lyft who are trying to care for them. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Listen, when you bring food to fill a backpack, you are closer to God than when you sit in a Bible study. When you go care for an orphan, when you go care for a single adult, a single mom who needs help, you are closer to God then than if you're sitting in some theology class. Because the best way to love God is to learn how to serve others in his name. You go where there are people hurting, you go there are people that are, that are, that are starving. Listen, you know what's happening? You're going to go where Jesus inhabits that land because he has built us to be last so that we might be first. But if we're not careful, we, we accept the award for being most humble. And the next thing you know, our heart is completely out of whack. Let me give you a second a description of what this looks like. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, the paradoxical teaching of Jesus is that to really be first, you've got to choose to be last. All right? You've got to choose to be last. It's a matter of your heart. But in Mark chapter 9, here's what happens in verse 33. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him, and he said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. So watch this. Jesus has walked with these guys down a road. Now, now remember, they're not hopping in a car. They're not grabbing a taxi. They're walking in dusty, nasty streets. They've got little threads of, of leather underneath them or barefoot, and they're walking through there, and their feet are gross and nasty. And the de disciples are having this discussion, kind of whispering, you know, under their breath, you know, wait a minute, you don't understand. I'm the coolest disciple. Have you seen how cool my church is? I, I'm, I, I'm, wait a minute, I'm, 
I'm the greatest disciple. Have you seen how many, many people come to my church? Another disciple says, hey, Mandy, you don't understand. I, I'm a best-selling disciple author. Have you, have you listened to my podcast? The, the other one says, so you don't understand. I went and I fed people out on the mission field, and when I did, they did a documentary of me. Booyah. And Jesus hears all this silliness in this discussion, and he looks at him and he says, wait a minute, whoever wants to be first must take last place, and here's the key phrase, and be the servant, the servant of everyone else. Now, a servant, remember, if we get the context which was written then, we get the context which is written now, right? And, and Jesus gives us this equation. You ready? You plus servanthood equals greatness. All right, let me go through this again. You plus servanthood equals greatness. Now, see, that is, every, that, that is so counterintuitive to what we know. Greatness for us is, wow, look how many people followed my blog. Look how many people liked my Facebook. Look how many people friended me uh, and how many Instagram likes I got. We, we, we use all kind of metrics and measurements to decide whether we're great or not. And Jesus comes along and blows all that junk out of the water, and he says, wait a minute. If you're going to be great, you've got to be a servant of all. Now, I'm one of those people, as you know, I get, I get hooked up on words. Words in the Bible make a big deal, and when you go study them, you understand this context. When it says servant to everyone, servant to all, here's what it boils down to. It says this. Jesus says, if you're going to be great, You've got to willingly, willfully choose to take the role of being a servant to everyone and do that without being paid for it. Now, he, he makes this distinction because the people he's talking to, they are servants or they are owned servants. So he talked to a people who knew what real live honest goodness slavery was. And Jesus is saying, if you're a servant, you're at the lowest part of, of this ladder. And Jesus is saying, if you really want to have a heart after me, you're going to go one level deeper. Not only are you going to do the nasty, dirty stuff that nobody else wants to do, you're going to want to do it. You're going to want to be in that position. And Jesus says, now when you do that, I'll put on your spiritual resume, now that lady, now that guy, that's great. But see, if we're not careful, what will happen is we'll think our service isn't a matter of our heart. We'll think our service is a matter of other people's appreciation and affirmation. And before long, what happens when we do that, we take on the belief that Jesus had to drop more blood for that guy's sin or that lady's sin because we did it right. Man, that's, what a messed up perspective. Can you imagine how these guys were hearing how these guys were hearing everything going on there. Wait a minute, Jesus, you want us to do what? You, you, want, you want us to do what? You, you, you want us to be servants? I thought we were building a kingdom here. I wanted to be the COO and be the CFO. You could be the CEO. We'd be something special. And Jesus comes along and says, all that C-class junk means nothing to me. You've got to willfully do that. And he says, what are you arguing about? And they were arguing about the same things we argue about. So Jesus sits there and he gives this word servant, diaconus. That's the word we get deacon from. Deacons are about serving people in need. If you're a deacon in the life of this church, it's not because you earn some title and you get to wear a badge and your hat wears a little differently. You're not a green beret of the church. 
If you're a deacon in the life of the church, you know what you are? You are willfully a servant that takes the lowest position to do the most lowly things because that's what Jesus called us to. Now, if we still didn't get it, let's go and take a look at another story. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. Here's what we find. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner. Now, here you got to understand in this story, Jesus is telling a parable. And the parable he's teaching, God is the landowner. All right? For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. Skip down to verse 16. And Jesus says that those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. So what happens in between there? Well, here's what happens in between there. So a, a Jewish workday was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. At 6 a.m., the, the landowner, he goes to get guys to help him pick the grapes in the vineyard. Because, you see, what they would have done around the hills of, of Israel, they, they would have cleared off plateaus, and you'd see, you can still see them, plateaued against a hill, and that's where they would grow those grapes. And so he would have just enough crew through the year to build the plateaus, take care of the plants, and when it was time to harvest them, he would go into town, and there would be a place standing on a corner, a bunch of dudes that he would pick, and they'd go do the work. And so he goes into town, and he picks his first crew to start at 6 a.m. And they go to work at 6 a.m. picking grapes. So the landowner, according to Scripture, goes back to town. At 9 a.m., he gets another group. And he, he agrees with the 6 a.m. group, this is what you're going to get paid. He agrees with the 9 a.m. group, what you're going to get paid. Just before noon, he thinks, I need more guys. He goes back into town, and he gets more guys. I agree what I'm going to get paid. So this is really cool. Right now, he's got plenty of people working. At 3 p.m., he goes back and gets another crew. I'm agree, this is what I'm going to pay you. He's got one hour left before the workday is over. He goes back into town, he gets another crew at 5 p.m., brings them back, they start picking grapes. 6 o'clock comes, the horn blows, it's over. The workdays come to an end, all right? And, and, and in Jerusalem, when the workday comes to an end, it comes to an end. It's not like it's overtime. I mean, you're done, right? So 6 p.m., they're done. So they line up to get their pay, and the first group that lines up is the crew that came on at 5 o'clock. And the landowner gives them a full day's wage. He gives them a denarii, a full day's wage. And those guys are like, wow, I just struck the jackpot. Man, this is awesome. They leave. They can't wait to go home. The next group who started at 3, they're thinking, this is going to be really cool. They get up in a line. They get the same amount of money. I'm thinking, eh, that's not cool. Hi, those guys worked an hour. I worked three. So they grumble and kind of move on. So the next crew that started at noon, they get in line, and the landowner gets to pay them. Pay them the same amount of money. Same thing. One day's wage. They only worked half a day. But you know, they start griping and complaining. Wait a minute. Those guys came at five, and those guys came at three. I should get more than them. I worked six hours. Then the guys at nine get the same thing. Same problem. Now we get to a real problem. Guys have been there 12 hours, 6 a.m. They have got sweat running. I mean, their hands are purple. I mean, it's just gross. They get up there, and they're thinking, surely the landowner is going to take care of us. And he gives them the same, same thing. He gives them one denarii. I say, daily pay. And all of a sudden, man, they are ticked. They go to the land, a landowner and say, that's not fair. And you know what most of us are thinking? That's not fair. That's just not fair. But now think about it. If we're the laborers and God's the landowner, some of you have been living for Christ for 50 plus years. And some of you just came to Christ in the last week. Did Jesus drop more blood for you 50 years ago than he did the guy that got saved this week? See, here's the problem. None of those people, none of those people agreed to something other. They agreed that said, this is what we'll do. It's interesting. Jesus is saying that none of us deserve a reward. 
You see this picture? None of us deserve a reward. Some of us needed more grace because we made a mess of our life. We made horrible, terrible decisions with our life. I was in a home the other day with a 23-year-old kid. He'd made one terrible, poor decision, and he serves, he's serving right now three years in the Georgia penitentiary. I mean, this is a great kid. He just made one stupid decision. And for the rest of his life, this is what he's going to have to record. Yeah, I serve time. But could I say to you, listen, that some of the work that this kid is doing in the prison system, God's going to honor more than some of what y'all are doing with your Sunday school class. Because his motivation. Students, listen. You want God to put on your resume when you get ready to head off to school? God said I was great. Then figure out who you're going to go serve and willfully do so without any credit. So I guess I'd ask you, who would you serve today knowing that the only affirmation you would get was a pat on the back from the Holy Spirit of God? What would it look like if that were the case? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. In this story, Jesus is teaching us this matter of rewards. The last will be first, the first will be last, and the final accounting, the Lord's analysis is the only thing that matters. Jesus is saying, listen, here's, here's the problem. All of us fall short of God's perfection. The book of Romans says, for the wages of sin, what we earn, think about these guys, what they earned that day. Scripture says that what we earn because of our sin is death, for the wages of sin are death. So if I, if I did a poll here and said, how many of you are perfect? Man, we, we, none of us, we've all failed. When you, when you measure us not against each other, you measure us against God's will, we all failed. And God says, for the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And he says, listen, we don't deserve anything, but God loves us so that he'll give it to us. He sees and he knows and he feels our motivation, and he knows why we're serving and who we're serving. I look at that, and I think to myself, man, I, I can't tell you how many times I fall short. Because Jesus said he came not to be served, but to be a servant. It's so counterculture to everything we know. I look at this last passage, and you know what I read and what I see is, I think of Psalm 139. David's psalm in 139, here's what he said in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, God, and know my anxious thoughts. And the question I ask you is, what's on your heart today? Is it the desire that you know God's called you to serve somebody to do something? And every time we say no to that, literally what we're doing is saying, you know what, I want to be first. And God says, well, then you're in last. And every time you choose, I want to be last, God says, I'm going to put you in first. And see, that just doesn't make sense, does it? That just doesn't make sense, does it? That doesn't compute. Because, you see, that's not what we were taught as kids. It's not what we were taught in school. It's not what we were taught in athletics or music or drama or whatever you do. I mean, the goal was to win. And Jesus says, you want to win, you want to be successful? Then what you have to do is choose to be a servant of all. And I would argue that most of us just desperately need to figure out who has God placed on our heart right now 
that we're supposed to serve, that we're supposed to make a difference in, that we're supposed to reach out to, that we're supposed to care for. And you figure out who that person is and choose to serve them, and you know what God says? That's what I'm talking about. That's my boy. That's my girl. Look at them as they serve. Jesus will put you first when you choose to put yourself last. I want to take just a minute and... um, uh, I, didn't, I didn't plan to do this until about two minutes before the service. I wasn't even sure I, I wanted to do it. Went, really just, really didn't, I didn't know what to do here. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to ask, um, really, this is this so off the cuff. It's just, it's ridiculous. All right. So, um, Rob, will you come up here for a minute? Okay, this is Rob Matola. Come, come here. Come on up stage. This is Rob Matola. Rob was recently um, selected by our church to serve as a deacon does a lot of stuff to help us with sound and lighting. He's a video producer, editor, shooter, get it done kind of guy. Rob, just have a seat over there, would you? And I want you to do me a favor. Just take your shoes and socks off for a minute. This, this looks a little creepy, I know. Um, Jesus sat around with his disciples. In that day and time, when, when they have walked, they had an outer garment and they had inner garments, not unlike what we do, but it their feet weren't covered completely like ours are. And so they didn't walk on sidewalks. They walked in dusty trails. And by the way, where they walked, um, they, they had to walk through the same path that their horses and their donkeys and their camels walked. So when, when that dust got between your toes, it was pretty gross. So the disciples show up, and Jesus comes over to Peter. Uh, Peter, who's always about winning. I mean, Peter's one of those ready, fire, aim kind of guys. Man, let's get it done. Come on, I got to do this. And Jesus comes over to Peter, and he, he leans down, and he takes a basin like this, and, and Peter's feet are nasty and dirty. Fortunately for me, Rob's are not. And um, Jesus takes this, and he begins to wash the feet of Peter. And the whole time he's doing it, Peter says, Lord, you... Don't do that. I'm, I'm supposed to wash your feet. You're, you're the great one. And I imagine Peter crying, thinking to himself, what, what did I do to deserve this? And Jesus keeps on, and he, he picks his foot up, and he gets underneath where all the gross part is. And he looks at that big toe, and he said, man, does that feel good, Peter? And Peter's like, yeah, man, I mentioned that. That's pretty cool. And he puts it back down and gives him a towel and says, let me dry you off. gets done with that and and I imagine the Lord reaching over and saying to Peter I love you buddy I picked you I chose you you're mine and I imagine it was even more uncomfortable than Rob just felt because Jesus sat there with one of his own and he said now that I've washed your feet you go wash others. Jesus gave us the greatest success model of all time when he said, if you want to be great, go be a servant to all. Listen to me, church. Why we ought to bring food and fill these bellies, six schools worth every week, is that's what it looks to serve people. Why do we keep going back to Haiti and bringing food and building orphanages, loving with these kids? Because that's serving. 
Why do we go to these schools and help these young teenagers who had a horrible experience and they're pregnant and they don't want to be because that's serving? Why do we go take care of people who have lost their job and they need the power turned on? That's serving. May we never, ever, ever, ever stop being a church that says it's about serving people in need and loving them in the name of Jesus and reaching people so that they feel and know, I'm loved, I'm cared for, I've been served. And when that happens, Jesus will look upon us and say, that's my church. Way to go. Well done. Today, your first step to greatness, let Jesus wash your feet. Let him in your mind come to you and sit before you and wash your feet and reach up and kiss you and hold you and say, I gave my life, I shed my blood that you would have life more abundantly now and eternally forever. Let's pray. God, it's in this moment that we say to you that we need you, we love you, that our God is ever faithful, that in times when we don't deserve it. There you are to encourage us in this journey. But God, use us to change the world from right here in the little sugar hill. Use us to serve people in need. God, break our heart that serving people isn't about going around the world. Serving people is somebody right across the street, right in front of them right now, right beside them or in their backyard. Serving people, maybe somebody in their class or in their, in, the, in their workplace. Serving is when we choose to take that spirit and that heart. God, break our hearts to love people.